you'll turn in your bulletin to page 9, we're going to read our scripture here in just a second from Romans 6, uh, verses 1 to 14. And just, just a, a brief word from me about um, the sermon. Um, I just wanted, wanted to say something about what I think about preaching really quickly. This is probably the hardest sermon I'll have to ever preach. Not because I'm nervous, not because uh, there's a lot riding on this sermon. Um, I, I have faith in, in God and his providence. Um, it's because of what I believe about preaching, which is, I believe preaching is contextual, and it's about knowing the people you're preaching to, which is something I look forward to doing, Lord willing. And so with this sermon, it's hard to know what are your needs? What are the things you need to hear? And there's one thing we always need to hear, which is the gospel. And so that's where we're going this morning. And I invite you to join in as we uh, read from Paul uh, in the book of Romans chapter 6 and hear what uh, the Lord might have for us this morning, wherever we find ourselves. So um, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our time here together. We pray now that as your word goes out, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you, uh, by your grace and mercy, change us, such as a seed goes into soil, so that the word would go into our hearts uh, and produce a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2016, our family took a trip to Disney World. And um, I had been to Disney World before as a kid, but it had been sometime in the 80s, and uh, so close to 30 years. And let me just say this, uh, a lot's changed at Disney World since the last time I was there, and, and, and mostly for the better. <clears throat> uh, but the one thing that stood out 
to me the most was the, the line experience. And I'm not talking about the fast pass, which is also from Jesus, but that's, we can talk about that another day. <laughs> talking about the experience of the waiting in line. Uh, because let's face it, when you think about Disney, especially if maybe you, you got to experience that at some point in time in your life in the 70s or 80s, the thing that you really dreaded the most, although you wanted to either take your children there, you wanted to experience it, was just, we're going to wait hours in line. We're going to give large sums of money to just wait in line. And, and for the most part, to, to wait and sweat and to um, you do this zigzag thing like we're cattle until we get to this three-minute ride after waiting for an hour and a half. You just can't justify the payoff, but somehow you still go. But Disney has changed all of this. And uh, not necessarily by eliminating the ride, or the, sorry, eliminating the lines. We still waited long periods of time. Um, but they changed this by making the waiting in line experience actually part of the ride that you were going to enjoy. Instead of zigzagging through a line as we just described, you now what, go on into different rooms with different exhibits to draw your attention to uh, all kinds of things and also to prepare you also for what is coming ahead. Some lines have interactive games that you play, play with as you wait, and some are so good that you actually forget for the moment that you are still waiting in line. It's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. See, what Disney has done is it is, in its redesigning uh, of, of its lines and the waiting process, it is not only reminding you that the ride that you actually got in here for in the first place is coming, it's actually telling you that the ride has already started. It's already begun, and as participants who are willing to shell out, you know, almost half of a kidney to go and experience all that Disney has to offer, we are invited now to live in that experience, to live in that new reality that the ride has started, though it is not fully here yet. Paul is coming out of chapter 5 in the book of Romans, having talked about the gospel of grace and Jesus' substitutionary work on our behalf on the cross. He is the second Adam. And now he is anticipating this question as he does in this section of Romans. You can kind of hear him sort of as a lawyer anticipating what people would, would ask in light of what he has said. And he's anticipating the question, well, if this is all of grace, which it is, won't people just keep sinning? I mean, what about the law here? And chapter 6 is Paul addressing that question. And what Paul wants to talk about is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, a new reality, a new creation has been ushered in. And although the fullness of it has not arrived as we wait on Christ's return, the ride, as it were, right, that this, this new creation points to has already begun. And it's already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And it has already begun in this new way that we are called as God's people by a spirit to be human by virtue of our union with Christ that we are actually planted with him. And the power of the resurrection as we wait for his return. And for Paul, this new reality, this new creation that has been ushered in by the resurrection is the reason for his resounding no. Is the reason for his resounding by no means exclamation point. With response to the question, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? How can we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to it. We are a new creation in Christ. So what I want us to look at is because of the resurrection for Paul, the, the reign of sin has, has been broken. And this is his reason for saying no to this. The reign of sin has been broken because of the resurrection. You have a new identity in Christ. 
And because of the resurrection, you have a new song. And that's the song of grace. And it's those reasons why when we begin to enter into the question of won't people keep on sinning, that they even ask that question, as we'll see, reflects a misunderstanding of the gospel in general, what Jesus has come to do for us. And that's his point. So let's look at those three things. Again, because of the resurrection, the reign of sin has been broken. That'll be our first point. Because of the resurrection, we have a new identity because of our union with Christ. And because of the resurrection, we have a new song as God's people, and it is a song of grace. So let's take them in in that order. The first one, because of the resurrection, the reign of sin has been broken. Paul tells us in verse 2, if you look at your text there, that we have what died to sin he says this out of asking, as I just mentioned, or said, a rhetorical question about grace and how if where sin abounds, as the text says, grace abounds all the more, therefore, should we continue to sin so that grace may increase? It's a logical question. And you might have even felt that or even had other people experience that. Well, look, if this is all grace and he's just going to forgive me, why does it matter what I do? That's the question. So Paul's response is, no, you've died to sin. And if you're like me, you're like, I still don't understand what you're talking about, Paul. (laughs) What do you mean? Like, I know me. What do you mean by that? For Paul, if this is the question that that concerns you after you've heard the free offer of the gospel, or even that just concerns you in the way that I just presented, but even is the thing that you're most scared of, so therefore this can't be grace, then Paul would say you don't understand what has happened to you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his first point is that you have died to sin, which means for Paul, sin no longer reigns over you. That's his point. No longer reigns over you. You have died to it since power over us is broken. Therefore, now we, we can possibly, you know, he's saying, how can we possibly still live in it or under its reign? Paul essentially sees sin because of the resurrection of Jesus as being dethroned or left to guerrilla warfare. Many commentaries use this illustration, so I'll just stick with it. But just imagine, and it wouldn't be hard to do this, a country who has been ruled for years by a terrible dictatorship. That government uh, being corrupt, uh, they have used uh, and abused their power and their authority. Now suppose, though, that that evil, corrupt government has been taken over, been pushed out of its reign, pushed out of its control and its authority of those people by a new and good government. No, that's an oxymoron. Just kidding. Like a, a, a righteous ruling government, right? But suppose that that old regime, right, though out of power and no longer reigning in office, decides to commit to guerrilla warfare by hiding out in the force and carrying out its occasional attacks from that vantage point. What we would now say is that the old regime is no longer in power, that it no longer reigns over you. But that doesn't mean that you don't feel its effects, right? It doesn't mean that it might not just still sort of be hurtling its plans of attacks from uh, our, our flanking left and right or whatever it is coming out of nowhere as guerrilla warfare. Just because it is out of, uh, of, of authority, because it no longer reigns, doesn't mean that we don't feel it's oftentimes power and the effects that it has on us. When Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He is saying that sin as a king or a ruler has been removed from power in the resurrection of Jesus. This is why we call Jesus, the second Adam. What the first Adam could not do for us and where he ultimately sent us, Jesus has now fixed. And that has been affirmed and solidified in the resurrection. 
Sin no longer reigns over you. You no longer, it no longer has authority over you. And, 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 and it's, it's better to say, because Paul will say this later, it no longer condemns you. That's what he means. And though you may still experience its attacks and its effects, how can you, this is his point, still live as though it does reign over you, as though it still condemns you? You have died to it. You're free. This was Paul's point. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that because we are dead to sin that we won't sin anymore. To be very clear about that. He's not saying that we will one day get to a point where we will no longer sin in this world. He's not saying that either. And he doesn't even mean that we are no longer tempted or even uh, desire sin anymore. He is saying that its reign, friends, is over. Its reign as a bad king no longer exists. Therefore, we as people who sit under what? A new king? A new power? A new authority? which is Christ, we actually have a new freedom. And he's going to say later on that we actually begin to desire that new freedom. What is that new freedom? It's a freedom to fight sin. It's a freedom to live into this new creation, to live into this new identity that has been given to you because of Jesus. We have the power and the ability to push back even against the evil that holds on to creation, that we experience the injustices around us. Remember, it is the gates of hell that will not prevail, not the gates of heaven. It is the church then that is on offense as we move into this new creation awaiting our king's return. We are not on defense, and this is all because of the resurrection and because resurrection is real. This is how the ride, as it were, has begun. Jesus has not come back yet, but his kingdom is already being inaugurated. Something new has happened and has broken into this world in the resurrection of Jesus It has stopped the reign of sin that ultimately ends in death and has now made way for something completely new. And while we may still feel and experience the attacks of sin and live as though sin still reigns at times, it has no power over us anymore. And we are called as Christians to live in that reality with all of those implications. And before we move on, this is not easy. As anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time can attest, this is not easy. And maybe even at times you even wonder if the Spirit is even at work in your life because of your own sin. In that sense, it can seem easier to live as though what? Resurrection never happened. Which is why Paul, in verse 11, if you look at it, in a sort of summary statement tells us that we are to what? Consider Consider yourselves dead to sin. It's interesting, you know, in the perfect, you are dead to sin. Now we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. Why is he saying this? What he means is we must stop and think about this. We must take this new reality into account because slavery, friends, is still in our bones. Which means fighting sin is not going to come what naturally at first. And in some aspects of your life, it will never come naturally until Christ returns or you go to be with him. We must consider it. Much like freed slaves, there is a new world before us that our hearts do not know how to live and love with this new freedom we have been given. We must consider it often. We must come in here each morning or each Sunday morning and remind each other of this, that this is who you are now because resurrection is real. And I need people to believe that for me just as much as I want to believe it for you and will and encourage you in that. 
We need people to come in here and tell us uh, right through the, the works of faith and repentance that these are now the new tools of the kingdom. That we, what, repent of the ways that we have not lived out as God's new creation. But we believe and we have faith that his promises, what, of grace are still true for us today. In that way, as Christians, we must constantly be telling and reminding each other of these things. We must partake and treasure, I might add, the means of grace that strengthens this new reality through the preaching of the word, through prayer, the table, and the fellowship of believers. And in through, in, in through all of those things, we were what? Reminding each other that the reign of sin is over. And these are now the new symbols and the new language of the new creation being ushered in by the resurrection. First point, longest point, I promise. <clears throat> because of the resurrection, the reign of sin has been broken. And it will never, listen to me, never, resume its power and authority over God's creation again. Second point, because of the resurrection now, we have a new identity in Christ because of our union with him. Let's move to that. So with the reign of sin now broken, how shall God's people live? This is the question. And for Paul, the pattern of redemption and rescue in the Bible is always one of God, what, rescuing a people from something to something. And I say often, I assume I'll say it often for the rest of my life, God doesn't rescue us, and this might be a more American version of Christianity, or rescue us from ourselves for us to go on and experience our best life now. He doesn't rescue us from ourselves so that we can go pursue our own dreams. He rescues us from the sin and slavery that we have been shackled to, and he rescues us to himself under his authority and his reign. This is the pattern throughout all of Scripture. We heard it in the Scripture we read this morning but I'll remind you, as Israel left Egypt and complained and wanted to return, God, what, caused them to do a wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And one of those reasons was to show Israel that they, what, could trust God. And with that trust, that they would begin to, what, to begin to desire new things based on their new identity as his people. Their identity for generations was wrapped up as slaves in Egypt, and it would take years to get Egypt, as it were, out of them. This is one of the main purposes of the years of wandering. But now, they belong to this God. A new reign, a new authority had come into their lives, and while their desires for the old way, as we heard, the old self, as it were, wouldn't change overnight, God was faithfully, though, in the business of leading them out of this slavery and unto himself, where he would show them a, what, a new way to live, a new way to understand who they were, a new way to worship, a new way to be human by giving them his law. And this would ultimately begin in the process or begin the process of reshaping their desires and all that they are to be the people they are because of God's rescue of them. It's grace. But I want to get ahead of myself. Again, new identity and a new identity for Paul, a new exodus has happened now, just like the old, but a new one has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of this is because we are united to him. Now through faith. And this is where Paul labors for the most uh, of this section. <clears throat> Look at verses 3 to 4 where he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried or planted 
therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk newness of life. Paul is entering into a much more difficult and confusing conversation about identity and status because of our union with Christ by faith alone. He is saying that by faith, we, uh, when we believed in Christ, something happened to us. You might not have noticed it immediately, but something happened to you. It was cosmic in nature. We were planted, what the Greek says, with Christ so that what happens to Jesus happened to you. So what happened uh, to Jesus in his death also happened to you. You died with him. But what also happened in his resurrection happened in you as well. Solidified that, assured that. In other words, what is true of Christ, what Paul is saying, what is true of Christ, friends, is true for you. That should send us dancing out of this building today, by the way. But that is Paul's point. This is new identity, new creation language for Paul, and it's all because we are united to Christ. Think of a child in an adoption scenario who was adopted out of poverty and war-torn lands and into a family then where, what, education and opportunities and, and unconditional love could be offered to that person, to be, be experienced by that person now, all because that they were adopted into this new family. Under that new identity, by belonging to that new family, a whole new world now begins to open up and begins to belong to them. You might say what was true for and of that adoptive family is now true of he or she who was adopted into them. And this, Paul will say this in Galatians. That's, that's what's happened to us. What is true for Christ is now true for us by virtue of our union with him. And he continues this in verses 5 to 9. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We can begin to see now why for Paul, because of our new identity, what it means to be united to Christ, all right, um, because of the reign of sin and it being broken, to go on sinning so that grace may abound makes no sense at all. And it makes no sense for Paul because it ignores the reality of what has happened by faith. It ignores the reality of what it means to be united to him and the power of that new identity, such as that adopted son or daughter, into that family. And just to go back to that illustration by being brought then into his or her new family, that now what? That not only changes the status or changes the identity of that child, but what does it do? It it offers to that person a, a possibility of new desires for that child. They are now free to desire something new for the first time. And it could be education, it could be opportunities, but it could also be unconditional love. And we all know the power of that if we have tasted that. We know how that changes us. The question, though, at this point is, uh, uh, for that adopted son or daughter, is will they begin to live like they are in this new place, new family, new identity? And that's the question for you. Will you live as though you are part of this new family, new identity, united to Christ? That's the question for the church. Or are we living as resurrection has not even happened? Are we living as though Paul didn't write these words that you have been planted and buried with him, but you have been resurrected with him as well. And by his spirit, you have a new life and you are a new creation. Therefore, are you going to live into that? That is what he is saying. For Paul, though, and for scripture as a whole, one thing that is always certain of mankind 
believers or not, is that we will, though, always underestimate the power of God in our lives. It's true. We will always underestimate what he has done and will do. And see, Paul's point that our cynical hearts have trouble believing at times is that the power to not go on sinning so that grace may abound is not because sin has changed necessarily, but because what you have changed. And you are changing. And I get it. It may be hard to even realize that that's happening. But that's his point. And this is the Spirit's promise in you. That you are being changed and are changing. And though we forget to live as sons and daughters of the king at times, it doesn't change the reality of our new identity as sons and daughters of the king. That you have been planted with Christ in his death and resurrection, which means that not only do the struggles that we face in life, right, the sufferings that we experience, the guilt and the shame and the baggage of, of, of how we have hurt others and how others have hurt us that we bring into this room every Sunday for worship, it's here. That doesn't define you anymore. That doesn't reign over you anymore. Something else does. A new king does. But it's not just those things. It's also death, friends. Death no longer reigns over you. Though he dies, as Jesus tells us in John 11, yet shall he live. Why? Because I am the resurrection. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, though they die. You hear it. It is new creation, new identity language. The question for Paul then is, will we live into that? And when we begin to understand what has happened to us, we will no longer feel the need to ask the question, well, won't we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Why would we? Something new has happened in us. And God is changing us by his spirit to move us into this new creation that he has called us to because and beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> as our calling as the church, as believers, it is our calling to live into that resurrection today. <clears throat> to live into and out of that new identity by virtue of our union with Christ for the sake of the world. And how does this happen? It happens by grace. And this gets to my final point. Because of the resurrection, we have a new song, friends. We have a new song. You have a new song. And it is the song of grace. In his book, After You Believe, by Tom Wright, he gives an illustration that helps us understand just what is happening because of the resurrection by God's grace. I want to share that with you. He speaks of a choir director that he knows uh, who took on the task of running this small village's choir, which hadn't been helped in years. And anyone who had ever listened to them would agree, right? To, to put it plainly, the choir, he says, was terrible. When they would sing before their, their church, the members would applaud, but clearly out of sympathy. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life before. Might get some of this after the service. Good sermon, Pastor. Um, <clears throat> but no matter how long or how hard this choir practiced, they never seemed to get better. But all that changed when Tom's friend took over the choir. He was able to teach them and to show them how to sing better, what harmonies were supposed to sound like, even how to read music to some for the first time. And it completely, what, transformed the choir. Same people, new sound. 
But what was just as interesting is that with this transformation came what? Members of the choir finding new desires in themselves, uh, wanting to go further with the music, what, wanting to read the music better, wanting to sense and to understand the harmonies in a deeper way. He says to feel the shape of the melody, to get the breathing and the voice production right, all of those things. See, this is what is happening to us in Christ because of the resurrection grace as Paul has been saying, is God coming to us as we are in our broken and in our messy ways, much like this choir director coming to this choir. But grace, friends, is never content to leave us where we are. In our fallen and messy, out-of-tune desires and states, grace motivates for Paul. And it empowers, not just by coming into our lives, but by changing our hearts as well, that we might begin to desire new things too, and then begin to long to act on those new desires, now as a new creation, because we have tasted grace. There's a sense of gratitude there. It is to say that once you get a taste for the new harmonies in the choir, you what? want more and more and more of them. And it's this grace of Christ that is our new song, friends, that leads us into this new life today. Verse 10 to 11 acts as sort of the summary for Paul coming out of that section where he says, for the death that he died, referring to Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He's transitioning now into what, what, what's, what are we supposed to do? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and what? Alive. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on with this call to live as this new creation in verse 12 saying, let not sin therefore, what? Reign, as we just got done talking about, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, which is just to say your gifts and your offerings and the things that you do to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from Death to life. Again, resurrection language. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And notice verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law. But what are you under? Look at it. You're under grace. You're under grace. And this is how he concludes his argument. It's actually grace that's going to move us forward. Grace is not the reason we're going to keep on sinning. Grace is the reason that we're going to change, that we're going to become more like Christ, that we're going to become more observant of our own sin, that we're going to grow into our repentance towards one another, grow into our faith and belief as well, trusting that the promises are true. Paul is actually saying that it's because we are under grace that will allow us to not give ourselves over to the passions of the flesh and our lives as instruments of unrighteousness and it's also because right now whatever we give ourselves to that would be unrighteousness it, it it's shinier right it's prettier it looks better we think it's going to fix us and what grace does is no this is this is the thing that's more more beautiful grace comes in and replaces that desire that's what he's saying and maybe you've experienced that uh, at some point in your life and you know that, that it's true and that you know that, that it can happen and that that's actually how the gospel is working in your life. But it is Jesus and his gospel of grace that has come and he is showing us and teaching us how to, in fact, truly sing as his people. And not in some, let me be clear, some uber spiritual kind of way, but in a, oh, this is what I was created for kind of way. There's a difference. And when you get a taste of that, you want more of it as reclaimed repurposed people 
to ignore this possibility is to be a people that live as though what resurrection did not happen. It's to want to go back to Egypt and settle for the pots there, the food, the three meals a day that you would get as slaves. It's to ignore the possibility that resurrection uh, is possible. <clears throat> and it's to go and to return a life as a life, into a life of slavery as though you've never heard this new song of grace. But let me encourage you this morning. I know you've heard it. I know everyone in here has heard this new song. And it's the good news. You've caught glimpses of this song, right? You've caught, sometimes it's faint melody at times in your life. You've been stopped by its harmony. It's beautiful harmonies even at times. It's caught your attention. You know it's there. You know it's true. But maybe you've just forgotten that it's there. Maybe because of all that has gone on or what is right in front of you, because of your circumstances, right? The volume of resurrection has been turned down really low. Your being united to Christ doesn't seem to make a difference right now. But you can hear the faint melodies of that song humming in the background. And I would encourage you, what, just to keep, turn that volume up a little bit. As we turn down, right, the, the volume of our circumstances that create fear and cynicism as we go out as God's people into this world. And why? Because resurrection is true. We are united to God in faith and to Jesus. And what is true of him will be true for us he is the one that rules over us and has authority over us. Grace is the Christian's new song because of the story of Jesus and his gospel. That he would take broken and messy people and create the most beautiful music possible. I'll close with this story. Um, I came across uh, an article that spoke of this jazz pianist um, that some of you probably have heard of uh, in the 70s. His name was Keith Jarrett. And he uh, went on to play this concert in Germany and um, at the Cologne Opera House. And they actually made a record of this thing because it was so fantastic. And it sold at the time 3.5 million copies, the highest selling jazz album, pianist album ever. But what makes the story interesting, and if you know, the, if you know this, you know what makes it interesting, is that he played this concert. And if you go listen to it, you have no idea. He played this concert on a broken piano. And he gives details about showing up and, and, and doing the, the sound checks and those kinds of things. The pedals would stick. Can't do this on a piano like that. Like keys would be out of tune. Some keys would stick as well and not even play. And there was a moment there where he even was, I can't do this. But he decided to do it. And what was the product of this, right? 3.5 million copies later, we have this amazing concert to listen to that people will be talking about forever. The summary statement in the article said this, in short, Jarrett made good music from a bad instrument. That's grace. That's your song. That's my song. That is, that's the gospel in Jesus Christ. That is why he hung on a cross for us. It's grace. That's why he was resurrected for you as well. It's grace. May that tune continue to resonate for us as his people until we go to be with him again. Why? Because resurrection is true. It's real. The reign of sin has been broken, right? You have a new identity by being united to Christ. And friends, you have a new song, and it is a song of grace. Let us sing it until we see him again for all eternity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in Romans. We thank you for the way that you guided Paul to record what, what we need to hear this morning, your truth. That it has not been changed. 
And it will never change. Your word will never go away. We pray now that we would be a people who begin to trust in new ways what it looks like to be this new creation that you have started in us because of your resurrection by virtue of us being united to you. And that would give us not just new hope, but uh, courage and strength, not just to go and, and evangelize or to represent and to speak your truth to people, but to be able to sit and wait with people who are weeping, who are mourning, grieving even, but also to remind them when the time is right and appropriate that there is a song of rejoicing coming for all of God's people and is the song of grace, the song of your gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that in and through us and that you would do this for your glory alone, for your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.